is submitted. We'll hear argument next in number 01-1757, Marion Reynolds Stogner v. California. I didn't pursue it, but when he says common law, Mr. Nehera. Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Petitioner comes before the Court asking one thing and one thing only, that the State of California be bound by its decrees and its laws that have guided it throughout the history of California, that the State and the Federal Government be bound by the laws of the land that have been in place essentially since the State's foundation. Since early on in this country's history, Chief Justice Marshall looked at a matter similar and said it would be repugnant to the genius of our laws to allow a prosecution to continue after the statute of limitations had expired. Such has been the law that only a few times in the history of this nation has any State had the trepidation to attempt to revive an expired cause of action in a criminal matter. In each such instance, the States have been uh, — <clears throat> the State has not been permitted to do so. In each such instance, such as in State versus Sneed, Moore versus State, and other such cases. Were those uh, State law cases and State constitutional cases? They were, Your Honor. And, uh, however, as I said, in Adams v. Wood, it involved a Federal matter, and it involved a matter that we might consider equally repugnant. It had to do with uh, the prosecution of an individual who was involved in the slave trade and laws that prohibited that. However, the attempt to punish that occurred after the statute had run. And Mr. Chief Justice uh, Marshall indicated in that particular case that even if the case had been treason, it could not be prosecuted, for under the federal law, treason was only prosecutable for a three-year period. Did he base his decision, the one that you're referring to, on the ex post facto clause? No, Your Honor. He based it on the uh, law that the statute of limitations in that case, the federal law, had in fact called for an expiration of the cause of action, and the court there decided that, no, it could not be prosecuted. But, no, he did not decide it on the ex post facto basis, Your Honor. As the Court knows, we raised two issues here, the ex post facto clause and the due process clause. And I would like to point out that the two clauses, while they both deal with arbitrariness and unfairness, are not coextensive, and that similarly, in addressing the matter, neither is petitioner's claim as to each. For under the ex post facto clause, we are not looking at to whether or not rights have vested, such as not a concern of the court for ex post facto concerns. However, in this particular case, Mr. Stogner has been vested with a right. The State of California has given him a substantive right, a defense that is neither waivable nor forfeitable. We, we've said in Graham against Connor uh, that if a provision of the Constitution speaks directly to a, a subject matter, such as I think the ex post facto clause does to your case here, then we don't go to substantive due process. We analyze it just under that provision. That is correct, Your Honor. However, as I indicated, the two uh, claims are, are not necessarily coextensive, and I would like to point the Court out to the case of Sacramento v. Lewis. There, the Court may recall, uh, involved a high-speed chase. The police were after individuals on a motorcycle. Uh, the motorcycle crashed. Uh, there was, in that case, uh, no Fourth, Fourth Amendment claim because no seizure had occurred of the person prior to the crash taking place. 
the court nevertheless was able to analyze that case under the substantive due process principles because it fell outside of the Fourth Amendment. Here we clearly believe that the case falls well within the the ex post facto clause. However, should the court decide otherwise, it strikes me that it should not um, render this court impotent to examine the matter as a substantive due process. It seems that would render the rule quite pointless. Uh, I mean, the, the rule is if it is analyzable under under a very specific provision of the Constitution and is not valid under that one, you then don't move on to analyze it under another one. And, but you're saying unless you win under the narrow one, it's not over. If you lose under the narrow one, you then can go on to the due process clause. That well, doesn't make it much of a much of a safeguard, it seems to me. Well, um, Justice Scalia, as I've indicated, the clauses are not are not absolutely uh, coextensive. We have in this case a vested right. The state of California has guaranteed to the petitioner the right that he be free from prosecution the right that he be free from conviction and the right that he be free from punishment. This is vested to him under state law. As such, that can be analyzed whether or not the court deems it sufficient under the ex post facto clause. As the court said in Weaver, we are not concerned under the ex post facto clause with vested rights. That's not necessary for analysis under the ex post facto clause. It is an additional factor that the court certainly should and we urge, must consider under the due process clause. If I may continue analyzing the matter first under the ex post facto clause, I think the first question perhaps that should be addressed is whether or not this is a rule of evidence and whether or not it falls within Calder 4. Clearly, this is a rule of evidence as the state of California has defined it. It is a rule of evidence because it is required of any finder of fact, whether it be a, a judge sitting pre-trial, examining the matter as a demur or in, in analyzing the matter as a sufficiency of evidence under Penal Code 995. Um, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't go to the kind of evidence necessary to prove the substantive offense, certainly. Yes, I, I would beg to differ, uh, Your Honor. And the reason is, is California has injected the statute of limitations into every offense in which uh, it applies. In such cases, it becomes a material ingredient of the offense. And in such cases, the prosecution is barred if that material ingredient is not proven by the prosecution. And if the matter should proceed to trial, a jury must acquit if the prosecution is not able to overcome its burden in that particular case. But that, that simply says there is another substantive element there. It doesn't say how, what rule of evidence you follow to decide how that was made out. It does, Your Honor, in, in this respect. If the evidence comes before a jury, for example, and the evidence shows that the prosecution is barred, that no public offense is stated, the jury must acquit. It is a rule that guides the jurors as much as it would guide a court in deciding what must be done with the particular facts. If the facts before the court show that the case is barred, then the prosecution cannot continue. The jurors must acquit. It, it would seem to me to be one of the most clear rules of evidence and applicable throughout, not just to California, not just to the federal government. But Suppose you have a, a, a case in which the statute of limitations has not yet expired, and the legislature then extends it. Uh, and it's during the extended period that the prosecution has brought. Is there an ex post facto violation there? I believe not, Your Honor. And the reason I believe not is that what is promised by the statute of limitations is not any particular number of years. Rather, what is promised... But how does that fit in with the description you just gave of, of, about the evidence? Because the evidence that must be shown by the prosecution is that the case has not been barred. That does not depend on any particular number of years. It depends... Well, that's the ultimate conclusion in the case. The case I put you is either barred or it isn't. We have to find the answer to that before we know whether there's evidence. I, I, just, I, I just don't understand your theory. The case is barred 
only when the statute has run. One can uh, liken it to a conditional promise. But why is it any evidence in, in one case or the other in the hypothetical right foot? Because the evidence uh, of, of an extended statute of limitations doesn't go to whether or not the case is barred. The evidence is still the same. The case has not yet run. Except it does if you're, if you're right on your theory. No, it, I am right on my theory because the, uh, the state is, in fact, barred from uh, proceeding, and the evidence that would Let come before the — another question on the ex post facto law. Suppose the state has a savings clause, and it reserves to itself the right to extend any statute of limitations. Uh, what result there if the state then extends a statute? I believe if there this is was, an, And then this is, in effect, at the time the crime is committed, this general power in the state to extend. I believe if the state has reserved the right to extend a statute of limitations before the statute has expired, then there is no ex post facto problem. I believe that the problem well, occurs — then you're not arguing for very much here. The, the states — all the states can just pass this statute, and, and that's the end of this case. Well, it's not the end of this particular case because the statute has, in fact, run. Certainly, a state is permitted to set statute of limitations, decide the terms and conditions thereof, and go forward uh, in the future under such a premise. What if, what if, what if a state says um, we reserve the right to dispense with any of the elements of, of crime that are on her books? Yeah, I mean, it announces that. We reserve the right in the future to dispense with uh, retroactively with any of the elements of the crimes that we have defined in our in our code. You wouldn't say that's okay, would you? No, I would not, Your Honor. Why is this any different? I, 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 I don't know. If, if it violates the ex post facto clause, I can't see how the state can get around it by announcing in advance that it's going to to violate the ex post facto clause. How does that make it okay? Because the ex post facto clause violation only occurs when the offense is deemed no more, and that only occurs when it runs. So if the case hasn't run yet, or the statute has not run yet, we're in a completely different posture. No, in California... But it has run. The state announces it in advance, then the statute runs, and the state says, hey, we told you. We told you beforehand that even after the statute's run, we're going to be able to get you. And I thought you said that's okay. It's okay in the statute of limitations uh, context because there they have reserved a situation that allows them to say the public offense still continues in this particular situation. What we have here is an absolute rule that says once run, not only can uh, no punishment be had, not only can no conviction be had, but not even a prosecution can be maintained. There is no offense once the statute has run. But you're saying a state could have no statutes of limitations. Yes, and, and the states have clearly done that in certain instances, such as in the case of murder. There is no statute of limitations in, the, in such a particular case. And you have no trouble with prospective application of either saying we're not going to have any statute of limitations for this crime or prospectively the time is going to be longer. You're only talking about the retrospective. That is correct, Your Honor. It is in its retrospective aspect that we run into problems because the state has clearly said there is no offense anymore. It is gone. It is dead. It's been terminated. And for the, the, you were being asked before about the difference between extending a limitation that has not yet expired and reviving a dead case. And for that, there was a very nice statement of the difference between the two by Judge Learned Hand. I thought in response to Justice Kennedy's question, you would come back with that. That is correct, Your Honor. It is clear as as, uh, His Honor, uh, Judge Learned Hand, that we're not offended in the same manner before the crime has expired when we extend the matter. That was the footnote in the Falter case? That is correct, Your Honor. Six or something? Uh, now, that's never been approved by this court. Have, have various circuit courts uh, approved of that? 
Uh, various circuit courts have, uh, as I recall, ha- have spoken of it. Some have objected to such language uh, recently, such as the, the Brechtel case. But uh, every state court that has looked at the matter, not just in California, has said uh, you cannot maintain such an action once it has expired. That's clearly been the law throughout. And it, it is important to note that this type of precedent, this history, has been throughout uh, the, the history of the United States. We have cases uh, extending early on, uh, State versus Sneed, a case that was cited, I might uh, note, in the uh, Kring opinion that was overruled by this court. Uh, but nevertheless, it was cited there for the proposition that, uh, that, that a statute of limitation once run did, in fact, uh, cause ex post facto violations. Well, whatever the federal stopper, I, I gather that this Court must have assumed there's such a distinction when it was dealing with Fifth Amendment claims, and it said once the statute of limitations has expired, you can't plead the Fifth. That's absolutely correct, Your Honor, and state uh, opinions are, of course, in accord, and it is striking to note that as late as 1993, in a case in California called Blackburn, uh, uh, an accused in a civil matter attempted to rely on the Fifth Amendment in order to avoid questions concerning child molestation. And the court there said, well, you haven't made a sufficient showing, and the reason being because the statute of limitations essentially replaces the Fifth Amendment. And I would note in that regard, in California in particular, that the statute of limitations has been viewed as such a powerful matter that it's been likened not only to the Fifth Amendment, but it's been likened to the Fourth Amendment in that it prevents unlawful seizures of a person. It's been likened to the double jeopardy clause in that one cannot prosecute a person again once the statute of limitations has run. And so this statute of limitations is not a matter of, of minimal import. Well, the, the California Supreme Court, in pronouncing it under state law, didn't give it that fundamental sweep at all. It, it had... They're bound by what the, how California uh, characterizes its own statute, I assume. To some extent, yes, and to some extent, no, because in ex post facto analysis, it is this court that looks at state law, and it's this court that makes a determination whether or not it violates ex post facto, regardless of what label a state may give it in particular. Uh, that principle was uh, announced in, in Lindsay, and, and it certainly was reaffirmed in, in Carmel. But we, we, have to exam- uh, we have to take the <coughs> state law as we, as we find it. Um, if, it's, if the Supreme Court of California says a law meant one thing, we don't come in and say it meant another. We can say you've changed the law, and therefore it's ex post facto. But we don't decide for ourselves over the overruling a state court what that particular law said at a particular time. Well, the court looks at the, at, what, at the substance of the matter, I believe. The court looks at whether or not um, the law violates the ex post facto clause, and it would seem to me that simply changing labels would be an easy way for a state to get around the ex post facto clause. As the court said as early as Cummings, uh, it's a matter of substance, not a matter of form. And California throughout its history, up until Fraser granted, had always considered statute of limitations to be matters of substance. They were not simply remedial matters or not simply procedural matters. They were matters of substance and they were matters of rights for the defendant or the person accused. Your, your claim doesn't fit very comfortably under any of the four Calder versus Bull um, factors or categories, I should say, of ex post facto violations. You're trying to shoehorn it under the rule of evidence category, number four? Whether, uh, Your Honor, whether comfortable or not, I believe it fits. And I believe that it fits within each of the four categories, not only because of the nature of the ex post facto clause, but because of the multifaceted nature of the statute of limitations at issue here. For example, if we look at uh, Calder Category 3, which deals with 
punishments and the laws that are annexed to the punishment. In the case of Lentz, which I believe was authored by Your Honor, in that case, uh, what was at stake was not what the state had defined as the punishment per se, the number of years. What was at stake there was that the state itself had granted credits, overcrowding credits. They did not even intend to, to give a benefit to the defendant there. And yet it fell within Calder 3 because the punishment had been reduced by laws that were annexed to the crime, the laws dealing with the overcrowding. And in that way, one can say if the court rejects the principle that this is a material ingredient of the offense itself, as California has defined it, certainly as a matter of punishment, it is a law that's annexed to that punishment and says after a certain period of time, no punishment shall be had. And that's quite clear under California law because it is not a waivable right. In other words, a person can go ahead and proceed to trial or go ahead and plead guilty and be languishing in prison and suffering the punishment and years later discover that he has a statute of limitation right and assert it then and punishment shall be had no more. He must be released. And so in that way, I do believe it fits within Calder that, category. That's the law in California, what you just said that even though you never raise it as, as, a, as an issue in your trial and you're, you're in sentence and you're in prison many years later, you could then come in and under California law, if, it, if the statute had run, you would be released? That is correct, Your Honor. That, is, that has been held over and over uh, in California since its early days and reaffirmed in particular in the McGee case, which was seminal in California and which defined it not just merely as a matter of defense, not just merely as a, as, as a right of the defendant, but also as a matter of jurisdiction for the court. And in that case, they made it very clear that uh, no, since no offense could be stated, no jurisdiction could be had by the court. Then, then what was the effect of the Fraser case? Well, the Fraser case uh, certainly tried to redefine the history, I believe, of, of the California law. Uh, and I might note, of course, that it dealt with a subsequent statute of limitations enacted well after the statute of limitations applicable to petitioner in this case and reinforced by 805.5 in 1985. So did the Fraser case overrule some of this uh, California doctrine on statute of limitations that you've just told us about? It certainly overruled cases such as Sobiec, which had held that, in fact, this was a violation of the ex post facto clause. While calling it a matter of legislative grace, they did not touch cases such as Zamora, which occurred in 1976, the same year that the statute of limitations would have expired here, that reaffirmed that this was, in fact, a substantive right. And I might note that even while using the language legislative grace, this court in Weaver said even if good time credits are given as a matter of legislative grace, it does not bar application of ex post facto. And so such credits could not be taken away, even though they had not in that particular case been earned. Mr. Nahara, could could you um, explain to me, I, I understand your argument that this falls within the fourth category of Calder, because you have to produce more evidence uh, under the, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, less evidence. Uh, it alters the amount of evidence necessary for conviction. Before the statute, you, you had to show that the crime was committed by a, uh, an earlier date, and after this, you don't have to show it was committed by that earlier date. But if that's the case, what I don't understand is why it makes any difference whether this increase or decrease in the amount of evidence necessary to convict uh, occurs before or after the old statute of limitations has run. In either event, it, it amounts to a decrease in the amount of evidence necessary to convict. Well, there's certainly an argument that can be made, and I know that Amicus has, has in a footnote, uh, addressed that. My, my belief is that what must be shown is not a particular number of years per se, because that can be altered, I believe. What must be shown by the evidence before the before a court is that because the number of years requisite of the statute of limitation has in fact passed, therefore the case is no more. So, yes, one does consider the number of years, but the number of years only matter as to whether or not the statute has, in fact, run in that particular case. 
Well, I, I hear you, but I, I, I don't, I don't really, I don't really. I suppose understand. you could also say that even though literally it would apply to both situations, there's a long-standing tradition of not applying it in the case where the statute has not run, and so you would construe that exception rather narrowly. That is correct. Uh, the state of California throughout has told all of its citizens, you no longer need to keep your guard up because the statute has run. If you have evidence, you don't have to preserve it. If you have letters that might be uh, of some support in your case, you don't have to maintain them. If you have witnesses, you no longer need to know where they are or, or, or how to get a hold of them. And that only uh, — Am I correct, just to get your view on this, am I correct that with respect to an unexpired statute of limitation where there's an attempt by the legislature to extend it, the law is really very well settled that that's permissible? Yes, and in particular in California, because in the same year that the Sobia case was decided, in which the Court said it is a violation of ex post facto to revive an expired cause of action, in that same year they decided People versus Snipe, which was an extension case. The statute had not yet run, and the Court there had no problem saying there is no ex post facto problem there. <clears throat> if, I, if I might continue. Uh, and I would like to attempt to address all, all, all the relevant categories. Turning to category number two, for example, uh, there we deal with a situation in which a crime is aggravated or enlarged. And uh, the opposition says, well, this only deals with punishment. Well, in, a re in one respect, all categories deal with ultimately with punishment. Uh, nevertheless, uh, it is a situation that is simply not redundant to the other categories. It is a category unto itself. And, and uh, even though there does not appear to be a great deal of case law on the point, one must still ask the question, when is a, uh, when is a case uh, aggravated in a fashion that doesn't merely mirror one of the other Calder categories? And I believe it's when the jurisdiction is increased, when persons who fall outside of the statute uh, become ensnared in it. And if I might, unless there is an additional question at this point, I would like to reserve the remaining time. Very well, Mr. Nehera. Uh, Ms. Gard, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, based on new evidence that children who have been sexually abused often delay reporting the crimes for substantial periods of time, the California Legislature extended the statute of limitations for the most serious of these offenses, and it expressly made the law retroactive. This law does not violate the Ex Post Facto Clause or the Due Process Clause. Turning first to Ex Post Facto, this law does not criminalize conduct that was innocent when it was done. Before you go through the four categories, might I just ask this general question? What if the uh, defendant had been pardoned? Would it be an, an ex post facto violation to, for the legislature to say we're going to now make it uh, subject to prosecution? No, Your Honor, it would not violate the ex post facto. And why not? Because what we're looking at with those four categories is what the law was in effect at the time the crime was committed, whether or not it was an innocent act that was later criminalized. A pardon has no effect on the, whether or not the act was innocent at the time it was committed. So we would say that is like um, an ex or a statute of limitations, that there would not be a change in the ex post facto. I'm sorry, I really didn't, didn't understand. You say that the pardon would be treated differently than the statute of limitations? No, it would be treated the same for It would be the, tax, treated the same. Purposes. Yes. And what about a general amnesty for, say, illegal aliens coming into the country and then if Congress passes a statute uh, saying we will forgive the crime and you cannot be prosecuted? Would the same analysis there, too? Um, with an amnesty, I don't, I believe it would be the same with the ex post facto. There may be some separation of powers issues. There may be um, double jeopardy issues, and there may be due process issues. I suppose it would depend on the Why situation. would those issues be different in that situation than in this situation? I believe that they actually would be very similar, with, but it would depend. I think sometimes amnesties are conditional or some well, Unconditional, in my Unconditional. Just um, like a pardon, but a legislative decision. Then what you would look to would be due process there, which you also can look to with an ex post facto. But then why can't we look to due process in this case? I don't think that you look to substantive due process. I believe that what was expressed earlier is when we have an explicit textual source of protection, which we have 
here, you don't look to substantive due process. The protection comes by way of procedural due process. That would be the same for the pardon and the amnesty. Yes, I believe it would be, Your Honor. And another preliminary question. You started out by saying these are very troublesome kinds of cases. But the argument that you're making, I take it, is across the board. Yes. Doesn't, it could be uh, it could be pickpocketing, and, and the argument would be the same. Without violating the ex post facto yes. clause, yes. And the ex post facto clause has been interpreted in terms of the four called categories. What I'd like to do is, is focus primarily on categories one and four, which this Court has said are mirror images of each other. The first category prevents the state from making an act that was innocent when it was committed criminal at a later time. It provides fair warning so that citizens are able to assess whether or not to engage in certain conduct. And it's related to guilt or innocence. The statute of limitations has no relation to guilt or innocence. It's a defense that's raised that says whether or not the defendant committed the crime, the state is not going to be able to prosecute. And when you look at whether or not the crime existed, what you look at is the definition of the crime as set forth by the elements. And I would refer the Court to the Frazier opinion, footnote 22, where the California Supreme Court has said, whatever its nature for various state law purposes, the statute of limitations is not an element of the offense insofar as the definition of criminal conduct occurred. The California Supreme Court has said that the crime that's at issue in this case is set forth in Penal Code Section 288, and the statute of limitations has no relation to that. Interplaying with the Category 1 is Category 4. May may I ask you, before you get to 4, may I ask you just to spend a a moment on something that that hasn't been the focus of much, and that is Category 2. Uh, that, that refers to ex post facto as something that makes greater or more serious uh, a, a crime that was previously defined. It seems to me that there are two sort of indexes of seriousness in a crime. One is the, the penalty in the strict sense that is, is provided for it. But another index seems to me the period of time after its commission uh, that a person who committed it is liable to be prosecuted. That is a judgment about seriousness. And that judgment is being changed here. Why doesn't it offend the second category? I believe when you're talking about increasing the punishment, what, what the, the cases have looked at is the punishment that exists at the time of the crime. And it really is the actual punishment whether or not the term of a punishment is one year or it's 20 years. And I don't think but, there's but authority. But that isn't exactly the term that at least that, that Calder used. I mean, it, 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 Calder speaks. I'm, I'm looking at the quotation on page, uh, uh, page 6 of the uh, 8, rather, of the, the, the government's brief. It, it refers to every law that aggravates a crime uh, or makes it greater uh, than it was when committed. And it seems to me that the, that the aggravation greater concept isn't necessarily limited to the index of punishment, and it, it, it could refer uh, to, the, to the index of seriousness that, that, that exists in the period of liability to prosecution. The second call to category, if we look back at the historical basis for that, comes from the creation of a new punishment that wasn't in effect at the time. Well, that, so that, that just replicates the, the third. That yeah, makes yeah. it totally redundant. Well, I, I don't think so, because the second one was, for example, where um, the new punishment that was imposed was banishment, which didn't exist at the time as a penalty for the prescribed crime. The third one is the increase in the punishment. But creating a new punishment, I don't think that holding um, a defendant liable for a longer period of time is the type of punishment that this court has looked at when it has applied those cases. What we're looking at is um, the purposes of the ex post facto clause, which is to provide fair warning so that he knows whether or not he should commit the crime. Well, it's saying that's well, here. Isn't that here? Excuse me? I mean, isn't that present here, at least in respect to the evidence? I mean, a person... As, as, for example, this particular defendant, you would like to prosecute, among other things, for crimes that were committed, in your view, 
43 years before the present — before the time of indictment, and 22 years anyway since the statute of limitations expired. It's quite possible that during that time people would have thought that they didn't have to keep records, that they didn't have to keep all the evidence, that they might not have to defend themselves. And, of course, there's something to be said on the other side, but also memories can be revived through hypnosis. Is this such a case? This is not such a case. And, in fact, right. California — All right. So then I — but, but they could be. And sometimes those are inaccurate. So people feel that they are free not to keep the evidence after 22 years. Now, if you're what, what, I'm, I'm trying to trigger your reaction okay, uh, I, to some of these fairly obvious points. I guess you have — you have touched on a couple of things. First is repose, and second is potential for prejudice. And the potential for prejudice exists because of the passage of time, not necessarily because of the retroactive change. So the fact that the evidence may be somewhat stale is a function of the mere passage of time. And as the Court is aware, um, there the state could impose no statute of limitations, so we could have a case that was 40 years out, and that would be the same issue. But the, but point, in terms the point, of course, is that, that in Calder v. Bull, the justice says, all these and similar laws are manifestly unjust and oppressive. And some of the purposes here, particularly the ones on evidence and so forth, seem to be about the kinds of things you're talking about. But the Court has said, and similar, but this Court has repeatedly held, most recently in Carmel in 2000, that the four Calder categories are the outside parameters and that a law to be ex post facto needs to fall within one, four of the, one of those four. And in terms of the prejudice, there but is the Calder category uh, in Carmel, the opinion of the Court said that category covers instances where the government refuses after the fact, to play by its own rules, altering them in a way that is advantageous only to the state to facilitate an easier conviction. If that was the Court's most recent description of the fourth category, this case would seem to fit in it. But I believe what the Court said there was that what was impermissible or unfair was undermining the presumption of of innocence, and that's not a relative when you have a statute of limitations. Innocence is of no import. So what the court said was, in Calder Category 1, you cannot change the elements of the crime retroactively, and in Calder Category 4, it said you can't change what the prosecution has to prove with respect to those four or those elements. So you can't change the presumption of innocence, which the Court spoke to in the Cummings case, and you can't lower the sufficiency of the evidence required to prove the elements of the crime, which is what the Court was saying in Calder. And in fact, if you find that changing um, this would would implicate the fourth Calder category, then you may want to look at Gut versus Minnesota, where the court held that a change in venue did not implicate any of the four Calder categories. And if you were to change venue, that would also change the fourth Calder category, which this would. May, and also, may I ask you this, this question? Obviously, the, you know, the, we're, we're engaged in kind of a definition of what the categories mean, as well as an analysis of what you have. Would you agree that if we do not fit this case within one of the caller categories, that and, and we accept your position that we will have to overrule Hale and, and Henkel, the, the, the case holding that, uh, that in fact the, uh, the Fifth Amendment cannot be pleaded once the, uh, once the statute has expired? No, I think what that would be is so long as the statute of limitations has expired and not been revived, that there is no present threat of prosecution. Oh, in other words, uh, one could be required to present evidence against himself, and then the next morning the state could say, hey, we've had a great idea. We're going to extend the statute of of limitations and prosecute you for what you just admitted to under the authority of Hale and Henkel. Is, Is that your position? Yes, but I think that you would have to suppress that statement because it would be unfair. That would be an act of misleading by the state to say you would have to pro- 
to testify, and then we're going to use it against you. So as we said, we don't believe this fits within the, one of the four Calder categories, but the protections come by way of the, sub, or the procedural component of the due process clause, that if, in fact, there has been actual prejudice, the, the defendant may raise that, as he may in any instance where there is a pretrial delay, and then the court will weigh that versus the reasons for the delay, which would, is would that equal, and, I, and I think this is your position, that would equally be true if the statute is extended before it is expired. Yes, it would be. Whenever there's pretrial delay, you use the test that the court enunciated in Marion and um, reiterated in Lavasco, and that's where we believe the protections come here. This case is before the court on a demur. There has been no allegation by the defendant that he's been prejudiced in any way in his ability to present a defense. But your strongest argument against Justice Souter's initial point, which I thought was that the word aggravated, every law that aggravates a crime, treating that as a kind of catch-all, where, in fact, it isn't literally within the other three, but from the point of view of purposes, it's the same. The argument against treating that aggravating a crime as a kind of catch-all is? I don't think that that was the intent at the time that this was. And and the evidence that it wasn't the intent? If we look at the historical basis for this, it was the creation. Well, it was the banishment matter. But you could treat the banishment that they were referring to that one thing or that they were uh, treating it as a catch-all. Yes, it was the creation of a new punishment. I don't think they had, that it was meant to be a catch-all, and this Court has never interpreted it to be a catch-all. One way or the other, or has it said it isn't? It has not said it is not, uh-huh. as far as I'm aware. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Thank you. And I think that Justice Kennedy mentioned um, about the extensions, and one of the things that you need to look at is when you're you're deciding whether or not an extension of the statute of limitations that isn't applied retroactively violates the ex post facto clause, we look to a defense that existed at the time the act was committed. And if he had a three-year statute of limitations at the time the act was committed, you would be changing the evidence if you followed his theory from three years to an extended period, whether or not it was an extension or revival. So we don't think that that would work, and this Court would actually have to overrule a long line of cases saying that extensions are also permissible, and um, the, the Federal District or Courts of Appeals, several of them have spoken about the fact that the statute of limitations is not the type of element that we're looking for to determine whether or not there has been a change in this. Are there a case, I don't know, quite know how the statute of limitations works in the criminal area. In the civil area, you know, you can very easily waive the statute of limitations if you don't plead it at the right time or if you make a counterclaim based on the same facts, etc. Uh, in, in the criminal system, are the statute of limitations routinely held waived? In this or, or, on the other hand, after the fact, can a prisoner say, I, I forgot there's a statute of limitations here and, and bring collateral attack? May I answer? Yes, briefly. In California, the defendant has the right to a pretrial hearing on the statute of limitations, and if the court finds that the statute of limitations exceptions have not been met, the defendant gets a dismissal. If it goes to trial, the court makes a determination, or the jury makes a determination. They first find guilt or not guilt, and then they make findings by a preponderance of the evidence. Thank you, Ms. Gard. Uh, We'll hear now from Mr. Gornstein. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, California's statute of limitations does not violate the ex post facto clause because it does not violate any of the four Calder categories. Mr. Gorsi, may I interrupt you to ask the same question I did of your co-counsel? Do you agree that the rule in this case will apply to pardons and general amnesties as well? It, insofar as we're talking about the ex post facto clause, well, correct. What yes, other so clause might apply? Well, the, legi- the legislature could not undo a, an executive pardon under this Court's decisions. Under the pardon clause, it has finality that the legislature can't undo it. I, I think the what, case is What provision of the pardon. Constitution prevents the legislature from uh, authorizing the, the prosecution of someone who's been pardoned? The provision of the Constitution that grants the President the power to pardon. Well, he legislature got amnesty. And, what, and what's the difference with an amnesty, too, and legislative amnesty? 
Can I let me let me do the pardon first, sure. and then I'll move to the amnesty. With respect to the a presidential pardon, it is final with respect to the legislature by virtue of the pardon clause. The pardon clause gives the president the power to issue a final pardon that the, the legislature can't undo. Is the pardon clause? Does the it, word final? It is not, but that's how the court interpreted the pardon clause, and I think it's ex parte Garland, but I'm not sure of the, the, the decision. Um, and what's the what's the answer with respect to a state pardon? There, there would be a state constitutional provision, um, usually analogous. Well, to that. But I mean, I is, there would not be. Let's, a federal, let's assume the state says no. Then, if then the, no if the state here. if the state says no, then the only question that would arise in a pardon is if you start to analogize it to a uh, uh, agreement situation like Santabella, because in some pardon situations, it's like an offer and it has to be accepted. You can't just force a pardon on somebody. And if there's an offer and an acceptance, you could potentially analogize it under the due process principle of Santabello, where the government can't withdraw from an agreement without implicating the due process clause. With respect to an amnesty, there would not be, again, an ex post facto clause violation. Um, and there would not be a, any other sort of due process violation, again, once again, unless it fell into the Santabello kind of situation or the Rayleigh kind of situation where the government offers something, it's accepted. You, and you then assert it, there would be no ex post facto violation, but right. why is it different from the, from the statute of limitations running? There's no, sta- there's no ex post facto clause violation with the statute of limitations running either. That's our position. Because it does not violate. Well, you say you could, you could uh, indict someone after granting the amnesty. I misunderstood you. Yes. Yes. What now, is your position with, on, on Hale against Henkel and Brown against Walker? The Fifth Amendment can can the state say that the statute of limitations has expired, therefore you have to speak, and then revive the time in which the prosecution can be brought. The premise of that decision is that you cannot assert the Fifth Amendment when there's no present threat of prosecution. And there is no present threat of prosecution when there's an expired limitations period. But if the person speaks under compulsion in that situation and a statute of limitations is subsequently retroactively amended, the government could not use the testimony that was secured through compulsion. So So what what is your, I mean, uh, starting your your basic argument, I look back, I see learned hands says that uh, after the period is run, it is unfair and dishonest to prosecute a person, violates the ex post facto clause. After the Civil War, Roscoe Conkling, a, a hawk, I think, said when they wanted to revive treason against Jefferson Davis, he said that the offense is dead if the statute is run. It would be ex post facto. Hornbook law, like American jurisprudence until recently, said uh, absolutely contrary to the Constitution. So what's changed? Or are in, is in the government's view, were all those people, uh, they weren't Supreme Courts, I agree, but it seemed to be accepted. So is something changed, or were they all wrong, uh, or what's the view? The, in this Court's decision in Collins, it recognized there had been some disagreement about the scope of the ex post facto clause in prior cases. And with some courts saying that it goes beyond the four categories to capture laws that operate to the disadvantage of the defendant in some important way. And with other courts saying it's limited to the Calder categories. In Collins, the court resolved that debate and said that the ex post facto clause is limited to the four Calder categories. There is not a fifth category of things that operate unfairly to the disadvantage of the defendant. Now, that was the analysis that Judge Hand used in the opinion that you referred to. He did not say that this violates any of the four categories. He essentially said this operates to the disadvantage of the defendant in an unfair way, a line of analysis that this Court ruled out in Collins and reaffirmed ruling it out in Carmel. The same thing is true of the state court decision that Judge Hand referred to in the first in the line of this decision's Hart versus Moore. It frankly acknowledged that this law, changing an expired limitations period, 
does not violate any of the four Calder categories. It said, though, we are going to go with the spirit that underlies the ex post facto clause. Well, again, this Court's decision in Collins absolutely rules out that line of analysis. In order to find an ex post facto clause violation, you must find that it violates one of the specific Calder categories. I didn't think uh, that Hand or American jurisprudence or the cases or Roscoe Conkling or the Civil War or any of these things said one thing one way or the other about whether it fell within the categories. I'm not sure I'm right on that, which is why I'm raising it. And, and if I'm, if I, but if I am right, uh, can you use the second category? Uh, anything that aggravates a crime? It seems to aggravate a crime to say that this crime would have been prosecuted for three years, and then we change it retroactively and say it could be prosecuted for 50 years. I mean, that seems to aggravate the — so what is your response to those things? On the, on Am I right in thinking they were silent? No. And two — no. Okay. Uh, in Hart v. Moore, which is the key precedent that Judge Hand referred to, it's just an 1880 case, the, the, the Court said that it doesn't violate the four Calder categories, and so it, it relied on the spirit underlying the clause. In the case of Judge Hand, he didn't undertake an analysis under the four categories, but he undertook the kind of a catch-all fifth category analysis that some of this Court's cases suggested was possible at the time, but that the Collins case um, said is not. Now, with respect to the question of Category 2, Category 2, this Court explained in the Carmel decision, is traced to Wodison's discussion. Wodison said that there are two kinds of laws that affect punishment. One of them creates new punishments. Another one increases the severity of the punishment. And what the Court said in Carmel is that Justice Chase precisely adapted those concepts into his category. Category two is changing, creating a punishment. Category three is increasing the severity of the punishment. And that is the limit of um, what those two categories involve. And neither of those are implicated in this case because the punishment is exactly the same in form and amount as that which was prescribed at the time of the offense. It is odd, Mr. Gornstein, isn't it, that we take as gospel something that was said en passant in a what you was called against Bull very early on. And the case, in fact, uh, decided it wasn't an, an ex post facto law. So this was dictum en passant, uh, and it, it didn't dispose of the case one way or another. But, but the situation is not that the, it is stare decisis from that case. It is stare decisis from subsequent cases like Collins and others, which have concluded that Justice Chase accurately determined the limits of the ex post facto clause based on the historical evidence of what the framers thought, including Woodison and Blackstone and, and state constitutions and uh, the framers and other sources that he relied on. He was right. He got it right. And subsequent decisions of the Court have held that, including Collins. Which Collins also said something, the recitation in Collins included, nor deprive one charged of with crime of any defense, it used the word any defense, available according to the law at the time the act was committed. No, in, in Collins what the Court said is that, that prior cases had used that formulation of any defense, and in particular Bazell. And what Collins did was to clarify that the only defenses that are available are those that go to excuse or justification at the time the offense is committed. And it merges it then with the first category, which deals with whether uh, changing laws and criminalizing conduct that was innocent when done. The defenses that, that are uh, prohibited, change, that you can't change under the ex post facto clause, are those that have the effect of criminalizing conduct that would have been innocent when it was done. I want to move uh, to the fourth category, where some of the questions have been. And it's critical to understand the fourth category is closely connected to the first category. It, re it changes what evidence is sufficient to show that the defendant's conduct was a crime at the time he acted. 
and a statute of limitations does not operate in that way. It changes what evidence is sufficient to show that there has been a timely prosecution, but it has no effect whatsoever on what evidence is sufficient to show that the defendant's conduct was a crime at the time he acted. So suppose on that particular point the State had a law that said that oral evidence can no longer be used for conviction after 10 years passes, and then it later changed the law to say it can be. Would that fall under the fourth category? It it, it would, Justice Breyer, if you said uh, no evidence is sufficient to sustain a conviction unless it meets certain specifications, because that's going to the crime. You can't prove up the crime. So you just said what you'd say is you'd say no oral evidence of child abuse can be admitted after 10 years. So you can use other forms of evidence. No, admissibility is a different question, Justice Breyer. So it wouldn't apply at all? It wouldn't apply to admissibility. Under Carmel drew a distinction between admissibility and sufficiency of the evidence rules. Changes in admissibility rules are permissible. Changes in sufficiency of the evidence rules are not. Now, explaining further why the fourth category needs to be read in this way, there are several reasons. The first is that's the way the Court has applied the fourth category. In situations where there's been a change in what evidence is sufficient to prove the first, to prove that the defendant committed a crime, it found a violation, as in Carmel um, and as in Cummings. But where the change was, uh, there was a change in what was sufficient to establish some other precondition that doesn't go back to whether the defendant acted criminally at the beginning, the Court hasn't found a violation. And the, the example is Gut versus Minnesota, where there was a change in the venue rule. What was changed there, changed was was sufficient to prove venue, which was a precondition to guilt, but it didn't change what was sufficient to prove that the defendant acted in a criminal manner when he acted, and the Court said that there was no fourth category violation. Also, the statutes of limitations for over 100 years, all the courts have concluded that if you retroactively amend an expired limit, unexpired, I'm sorry, an unexpired limitations period, there's no ex post facto clause violation. And in terms of the, the Calder Category 4, there's absolutely no difference between those statutes and this one. In both cases, it changes what's sufficient to show that there is a timely prosecution. In neither case does it change what's sufficient to show that the defendant committed, when he acted, he committed a crime. And that is what Category 4 is about. Finally, in Carmel, this Court noted that Category 4 is a mirror image of Category 1. And it said they both work together to prevent subversions of the presumption of innocence. And that description of Category 4 supports the conclusion of the linkage between 4 and 1 that what you're talking about are rules that change what evidence is sufficient to show that the defendant's conduct was a crime when he acted. And that's not — and the statute of limitations here doesn't do that. It changes what's sufficient to show that there's been a timely prosecution. It doesn't change in any way what's sufficient to show that the defendant committed a crime when he acted. If the Court has no further questions. I have one question, if I might. Other than the reference to the language in the four categories, is there any precedent of this Court supporting the government's position? The, the, the only precedent, and I, it's mild precedent, um, is the Stewart versus Kahn decision, where the Court was examining a retroactive uh, tolling period during the Civil War. And the Court, the issue actually before the Court was the civil component of that. But in the course of discussing that, Justice Stevens, the Court mentioned that the criminal component of it was also retroactive and and applied to expired limitations period. And in a paragraph that applied to both civil and criminal, the Court said there's no constitutional problem with that. Thank you, Mr. Kornstein. Mr. Mr. Nehera, you have uh, four minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. I'd like to, first of all, answer one question. It's clear by California law that post-conviction, a person can raise either by habeas or other uh, appellate relief the statute of limitations claim. That's been clear since Ex parte Vice and was reaffirmed in the McGee case. 
The, turning to the Collins question, the real important Collins was not to get caught up in distinctions or labels such as substantive versus procedure. And it would seem that if we begin to draw such distinctions here, we run ultimately into the same problems. And it would seem to me that if Collins stands for the proposition that affirmative defenses, defenses which the defendant has the burden of establishing are protected, why are not defenses that the district attorney must disprove, such as the statute of limitations? For this has always been, in California, the burden upon the prosecution to show that the statute has, in fact, not run. Also, it seems that the state wishes to shift the burden and foist it upon the petitioner and says, well, we can address this in procedural due process. Well, in fact, that, as I said, foists the burden onto the petitioner when the burden, in fact, lies with the prosecution. And in the Marion case, uh, Supreme Court case, the court reaffirmed that an irrebuttable presumption of harm occurs by such delay, and that's by way of the legislative act. Finally, I'd like to note that uh, not only would finality be upset in these particular cases, but really what we're talking about is respect for the laws. Every day in this country, citizens make bargains with, uh, with the state, and the state makes bargains with its citizens. It did so by creating a statute of limitations. And every day, particularly in the criminal field, uh, most, the vast majority of the accused enter into bargains. They plea bargain. They uh, give away their rights and accept a bargain. And we hold them to that. We hold them accountable for what they bargain. Are we here, if we accept the state's position, are we here to hold the state to a lesser standard than we hold to what many consider the meanest and lowest amongst us? I would think not. I think we would expect the state and the federal government to stand for something more, to be the leader and not the follower, to have a standard higher or at least equal to that of which we expect of each of our accused, each person who uh, pleads in this particular case. I would ask, as I said in the beginning, that this court hold the state to the bargain that it chose to make, to the terms that it chose to define by creating the statute of limitations. And if there are no further questions, I will submit the matter. Thank you, Mr. Nehara. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.